Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The had to have high, high hopes for a living. Didn't know how, but I always had a feeling. Addition, as we hear from a national sports talk show and TV host who has high hopes for the Bengals this season and beyond. Plus, it's week three of voluntary spring practices, and I'll talk to Dave Lapham about Joe Burrow's improved arm strength, what the team is likely doing when the media is not allowed to watch, and Lap will answer the questions you submitted on Twitter, including this classic, what's the biggest animal you think you could wrestle? The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since Chloe Kovaleski. The U.S. Women's Open Golf Championship took place in San Francisco last week, and the leader in driving distance at the end of round one was Chloe Kovaleski, who averaged 303 yards off the tee. That was about 10 yards ahead of any other player. Now here's the catch. Chloe is 14 years old. She was the youngest player to qualify for the U.S. Women's Open this year, and while she missed the cut after shooting 81-81, I have a strong feeling that golf fans will be hearing the name Chloe Kovaleski for many years to come. Now, let's get to my first guest. There's a story on NFL.com today with the following headline. Nine NFL Bandwagons to Hop On in 2021. It was written by columnist Adam Shine, who is hopping on the Joe Burrow bandwagon. He wrote the following. It looks like he'll be ready for week one, and I can't wait. This cat has it. He's what you want in a franchise quarterback, and he's going to be a superstar. Adam Shine, as you probably know, is a very entertaining national sports talk show host and he was kind enough to work me into his insane schedule this week. All right, people seem to think that I'm busy, but it's nothing in comparison to my next guest. He is the host of Shine On Sports, weekdays 9 to noon on Sirius XM Radio. You can watch him weeknights at 6 o'clock on CBS Sportsnet. He is a columnist for NFL.com. He has a podcast. We're talking about my guy, proud Syracuse University graduate, Adam Shine. How you doing, buddy? Oh, Dan, I'm excellent, and it's great to be with you, my friend. Hope all is well with you. Things are great here, and I want to start with something that you wrote a couple of weeks ago on NFL.com. You made nine bold predictions. One of them involved the Tennessee Titans winning 11 games with Julio Jones, so you nailed that way before it actually went down, so your credibility is looking good. (laughs) And you also made this prediction. The Bengals will win more games than the Steelers. We obviously love that here in Cincinnati, but Pittsburgh won eight more games than the Bengals did last year. Explain your reasoning. Well, it was for a variety of reasons. Number one, and and I know how difficult it is to win in the NFL. I thought last year, Mike Tomlin did a phenomenal job winning all those games in a row early. Because frankly, I didn't think the, the Pittsburgh Steelers were that good. And Tomlin's never been under 500 and deserved a contract extension. And he's a heck of a coach. And I thought Pittsburgh really overachieved. I I never thought they were going to be a Super Bowl team. 
never thought even when they were winning these games, they were going to go on some kind of playoff run. And I think Ben Roethlisberger is a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think he hit the wall and he looked like someone who's pushing 40, who's coming off of unprecedented surgery. And by the way, that's all factual more than it is opinion. And, you know, I thought the the Steelers run game, I said last year at this time, was going to be literally the worst in the NFL. And it was 32 out of 32. And look, I, I don't think the Steelers improved. Look, Najee Harris, I think, has the ability to be a strong running back, and I like him a lot, but the weakness of the team was the offensive line, and they got worse. Ben's not getting any younger. The defense is not what it was, and look at how they played on defense last year without Bud Dupree, and Bud Dupree left and went to Tennessee, so I'm not high on Pittsburgh. I I think that Cleveland and Baltimore debate the order top two teams in the division. And Dan, I'm, I'm high on the Bengals. I, I really am. I, I think Cincy has a chance this year to surprise some people. I, I think all I needed to see was Joe Burrow and his health. And, and just knowing that he was going to be ready for the start of the season, that was it. And I, I love what, what Cincinnati did in the draft. I mean, Jamar Chase to me is, is, is special. And the fact that you don't even have to have an educated guess about the chemistry with the quarterback and the receiver. You saw it in college at a historic, a winning, a championship level. Boy, I screamed forever. I wanted the Packers to draft T. Higgins instead of Jordan Love. Higgins, I thought, had a strong rookie year. You factor Boyd in. Listen, I'm still a believer. Joe Mixon is a stud at the running back position. And here's what I think the NFL defenses have become. You don't need to necessarily have a great defense as long as you can create turnovers. And I think Cincinnati can do that on defense and get the ball back to Joe. And it's almost like Joe was a little lost in the shuffle last year, which is crazy because he was putting up big numbers, but the offensive line was poor and he was getting sacked left and right. And since he wasn't winning games, I mean, it's still Joe Burrow, and I and I love Herbert, and I thought Herbert was going to be a star, and, you know, I still think Tua is going to be a good player in the NFL. It's still Joe Burrow, <laughs> and I think this guy is going to be special. Nothing has changed. So I didn't really even hesitate. I, I normally have a feel when I give it a strong opinion and I only say or write what I believe. You know, when something's going to be, you know, I'm going to be getting tweets, positive and negative, left and right, or calls on my Sirius XM radio show. This one took on a fun life of its own, and I stand by everything I said. I'm sure Steelers fans reacted very kindly on social media. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm very, very popular in Pittsburgh. But look, you know, I, I've been critical of the Steelers in, in recent years. I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I like to say if you're a Steeler fan and you're going home at night and, you know, you're you're snuggling with your Jerome Bettis teddy bear or you're looking at a poster on your wall of Stallworth and Swan or Bradshaw, then, you know, we really can't have the discussion on what's going on now. And, you know, they haven't won a playoff game in, in five years. And again, different teams, different standards. I'm not talking about the history of the Steelers, but I, I think they they've been living on planet delusional a little bit. You know, it's one thing to let Bell and Brown go. It's another, and they were right. It's another thing not to replace them. And I think that Pittsburgh can almost do that because of their history. 
You know, I, I would have signed Jameis Winston a year ago. I stand by that take. You know, I, I would have let Ben Roethlisberger go this offseason. I would have cut the cord and moved into the future. I stand by that opinion. I would have signed Leonard Fournette last year if I, if I was Pittsburgh. I stand by that opinion. I think Pittsburgh has kind of been kind of been treading water and, and has been – forget the wins and losses. They haven't won a playoff game in a while. They're not that close to the Super Bowl. And I think if you're being honest and objective, and this is not going to be a Bengals Super Bowl season, Cincinnati's closer to the Super Bowl for 2022, 2023, and beyond because of the star quarterback. I also think the the big three at receiver in Cincinnati is going to be fun. Like I, I always go back to something Phil Sims told me years ago. You want your receiving core to be like a basketball right? You want your point guard, you want your center, you want your small forward who can run the point, different types of guys at the receiver position. I thought that was such a brilliant line. And and the Bengals are going to have that. You know, I think the offensive line should be better. I think it should be pretty good. I don't think it's going to be the hogs for Washington in the mid eighties, but I I think Cincinnati is going to be in a lot of games in the fourth quarter. And I think if they can get off to a good start and going through the Bengals schedule, I think it's favorable. And I think that Burrow helps change the attitude. You know, there's not going to be a loser's lament or a here we go again in Cincinnati. Joe Burrow is going into the season thinking he's winning every game. That's part of the Joe Burrow it factor. And I I can't wait for it. He has definitely added some swag to this franchise. There's no question about it. My guest is Adam Shine. You can follow him. You should follow him on Twitter at Adam Shine, S-C-H-E-I-N. When the schedule came out, you picked the top nine primetime games in order. Number five on the list, Jacksonville at Cincinnati on Thursday night football early in the season. In your words, I am obsessed with this game. (laughs) Listen, I think when you get the top two picks back-to-back years at the quarterback position, and, and everything I'm saying about Joe, you know, the, the scouts or GMs or execs you talk to, you know, Trevor Lawrence is supposed to be better, right? Like if you talk to people around the league in terms of projecting on Saturday and how they translate to Sunday, you know, it's John Elway, it's, it's Andrew Locke, and it's, it's Trevor Lawrence. I also think putting this game early in the season is great. I mean, we don't know the win total for Cincy or for Jacksonville, even though fans in both those cities should be excited But when you can get these quarterbacks going head-to-head, they're both going to take it personally. They both want to show off their skills. They both have solid surrounding pieces. Look, I I love stuff like this. I think if you're a fan, you know, and I'll never – I'm never one, you know, I don't don't get bored by by Kevin Durant or LeBron James. I, I don't get bored by greatness or success. I like watching great athletes do great things. But if you're looking for new blood, and I think the NFL is in a great place, stand at the quarterback position, I think that Burrow and, and Lawrence, that's going to be fun for a long time. And comparing them. And then we'll get to have the instant conversation and reaction. I'm genuinely obsessed with this game. I love it. On your podcast, your recent guests have included Boomer Esiason and Carson Palmer. When you've talked to them about Joe Burrow, what's caught your ear? They love them. They, they both do. That's, that's a great question. And you can tell 
that how much, and, and I work with Boomer on, on CBS on Sundays and he'll do his hits with us on, on that of the pregame show. And then on the podcast, he loves Joe. He loves every, his skill set, his demeanor, his ability to tune out the noise, his arm, his accuracy. And, and it was interesting talking to Carson. I, I always enjoy talking to Carson because I, I find Carson to be a really fascinating individual and he loves Burrow and he loves the fans in Cincinnati. And I love talking to Carson about his Cincinnati experience because he loves the fans in Cincinnati so much. He genuinely does and has such a great attachment. And he's rooting so hard for, for Joe Burrow. So he, lo- he loves the, the zip on the fastball, the accuracy, a lot of the same things that Boomer did. But both those guys were very high on Joe Burrow. Last thing for Adam Shine, because you have places to go. You praised the Bengals when they hired Zach Taylor a couple of years ago. And the first two years have obviously been rough. Injuries have been a huge factor. Where are you now on Zach Taylor? Dan, how's this for an answer? I don't know. I, I, I genuinely don't know. I think the first year I felt like I was wrong on being high on the hire. The second year, I feel like, was a little bit of a wash. I do think after the Burrow injury and the Pittsburgh game, they played hard down the stretch, and I thought that was was a positive. I, I think we're going to learn everything we need to know about Zach Taylor this year. I think that's fair. I thought the first year was a bit of a disappointment. I thought the second year, there were some good signs late. You know, I, I think this year, and I still like – him for all the reasons I documented when he was hired, but I, I expect the Bengals to be relevant. I expect the Bengals to surprise some people, win some games that they're not supposed to win, you know, that they're not favored to win. I expect Cincinnati to get off to a pretty good start. I, I, I think we're going to learn a lot about Zach Taylor, how he can handle success, how he can deal with some expectations I think this is a big year for Zach Taylor. I'm not going to say hot seat. I'm just going to say learn a lot about whether or not when we start talking about the what I view as glory years for Cincinnati with Joe Burrow, if he's going to be the guy for the Cincinnati Bengals. There is a reason why you have a national radio show, TV show, podcast, and column. You're awesome. I know Bengals fans are going to love this conversation. Thanks so much for the time. I really appreciate it. You're the best, Dan. Anything for you. I mentioned this the last time that Adam was on this podcast, but I'll tell the story again. After graduating from Syracuse, I worked there for nearly 10 years in radio and TV. And after moving to Cincinnati in the late 90s, my friends back in the queue started telling me about a young sports talk host right out of SU that they thought was going to make it big. He went by primetime shine, and they were right. Adam has become a star, and I couldn't be happier for him. He's one of my favorite people in the business. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. Now time to bring in my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham, as we share some observations after watching practice on Tuesday and answer the Ask Lap questions you submitted on Twitter. Lap, I want to start with one of the hot topics from the uh, three weeks of OTAs, and that is Joe Burrow's arm strength. Is it noticeably better, in your opinion? Yeah, I thought so. I mean, definitely, like, by the second 
the second workout, I thought, eh, maybe the first one is adrenaline juice, you know, a little <laughs> bit. So excited to be out there after not having been out there for a while. But then watching him throw, it just seemed like it had it had a little bit more zip on it, a few more RPMs. And so in the, uh, in the Zoom conference call, I started asking some of the receivers about it. And guys like Tyler Boyd and CJ said, yeah, you know, definitely, boy, you can get the gloves on. You can definitely feel it coming in coming into the hands and I I thought it's it's his mechanics you know doing the working out that he's doing he's he's made his core so much stronger his hips everything is torque you know it all looks like he's gotten a little bit more powerful in everything that he's doing and uh and I think it's translating and hasn't lost a bit of accuracy which is key and that's the biggest thing is to make sure you're throwing it straight and hitting the spots you want to hit and don't get so consumed with trying to throw it harder that you know, it starts to distort those kind of things, and it, and it hasn't at all. So I, it, it's, I think it's going to be exciting to see him throw it this year. I'm glad you said that because you talked to his dad, Jimmy, for your podcast, and that's something that he pointed out. Accuracy is his superpower, and while you'd like to be able to throw it a little bit harder and a little bit deeper, it can't be at the expense of what got you here. No question about it. And, uh, you know, I, I played with uh, with a quarterback that his his – calling card was his accuracy Kenny Anderson for for quite a few years and um, you know Joe Montana another guy that might not have had like a howitzer throwing on Kenny Anderson's arm strength was plenty strong but it wasn't one of those like Burt Jones or one of these guys that could throw a football through a wall kind of thing and uh, but Kenny's was man he would hit tight tight spots he, he was uncanny his accuracy and um, I think that's the biggest thing I, I think if a quarterback could ask for one thing, the first requirement, the first requisite thing to have as a quarterback would be throwing it where you want it to be thrown, hitting that spot, tight spots, throwing it to good spots, receivers having confidence you're going to hit those spots. I think that's what it's all about for a quarterback. Excellent Burt Jones reference, another <laughs> LSU legend. There you go, Burt. I'll tell you, that guy, man, when he was when he played – at the same time we overlapped careers when he was playing with the Colts and he could fire it and Joe Ehrman Syracuse defensive tackle was a teammate and I remember you know playing against Joe when we played the Colts and I'd say to him after I said man your quarterback man he can he can fire the pill he goes oh brother he said all I hear about is receivers complaining about him you know dislodging fingers and and all the, all the, everything goes along with it splitting the webbing you actually you know have a receiver having that skin between the fingers split a little bit that's when they're really bringing it, man. This is the first podcast we've recorded since the first week of OTAs. And after that first practice, we talked about how they were being uber conservative with Joe Burrow. He was not rolling out left and right. They weren't even having a running back lineup with him in the backfield just in case there was an accidental collision. Well, over the past couple of weeks, that's changed. He is rolling out left and right. They did do some play action fakes today. So... Nothing crazy. It's certainly not uh, not a case of risking further injury or some sort of setback in his rehab, but they are gradually inching things forward just a bit. Right, and I think, obviously, he wants it. You know, he, he he's all in for that. And then when they talk to the trainers and doctors, they're all on the same page. They're all on board. And watching him today, he, would, he was jogging at a pretty good clip. I mean, half jog, half not sprint. But he was leading the pack. They'd go from one drill to another, and he's leading the pack, you know. So I, he's showing his teammates, hey, look, man, I'm feeling pretty good. I, it's getting stronger and stronger by day. They're halfway through, you know, these OTAs slash minicamp practices. So 
I think he feels like it's time to turn it up another notch, and uh, I think he's progressing along great. And um, I, I, his teammates right now, I, if I were playing with Joe Burrow with the Cincinnati Bengals, a teammate of his, I'd be like, okay, he's showing not only physical toughness, he's showing mental toughness. He's showing he's about as tough as anybody we have in this football team. So uh, let's let's follow this guy. Let's follow this guy's lead. He may be able to take us to the promised land. It's like the message you give your kid. Be the first kid in every drill when you send him off to a basketball camp or whatever as a kid. Absolutely, you know, and, and I, I think it's a, a definite message. You know, it, it, it was like teammates were saying, you know, Joe Joe could have said, ah, I still want to rehab. No, instead I want to be out here with my football team. Now take it to the next level. I not only want to be out here with my football team, I want to lead my football team. I want to show that, you know, by being the first guy to every drill and, and everything that goes along with it. I think... Uh, I think a message is being sent there. I think it's an intentional message, and I think it's a really good message. During this phase of the offseason, we're only allowed to watch the team once a week. And over the past couple of weeks, they've made us wait while they were doing some stuff that they didn't want the media to see. What are they doing during those periods? Yeah, I, I think I think I have a feeling the installation has been fairly aggressive. You know, I think that there's two ways to look at it. You have all these new players uh, do you take it along slowly, and, and is it a gradual install? Or do you throw it all at them and then have them, um, okay, everything's installed. Here, here's the whole whole shebang, the whole ball of wax. Now you have the rest of June when they're done with uh, the mandatory mini camp, and almost all of the month of July, and then you come back to training camp. How much of a retention has there been? You know, you have it all. Now you have a chance to review it. And, and redigest it in that month and a half as you're waiting for training camp to start. And then you can reinstall, and it might be a lot shorter process during the training camp installation uh, period. And I have a feeling that they're installing quite a bit. And I think that's what they're doing in the earlier uh, portion of camp that is off limits to, to the media. I think they're showing a lot of, a lot of different force formations, personnel groupings. Uh, I think a lot of diversity in fronts for, for the defense um, and, and on the back end in coverages. So... I, I think that they're, I think they're going to be very aggressive, uh, both offensively and defensively, in terms of the volume of, of looks and uh, different things that they're going to show the opponent. I think they're going to make the opponent have to think a lot, and I think they're attacking it as early as they possibly can as they're installing it. I'm going to plug your In the Trenches podcast again because it's awesome. You had Jesse Bates on a, on a recent episode, and he was great. His play speaks for itself. But what else impresses you about Jesse Bates? Yeah, I, I think the person, you know, the, the character of him, um, you know, leadership. I think he's he, he's not bashful about, I'm going to be the guy to bring everybody together. I'm going to be the guy to reach out to people. I'm going to be the I'm going to be the glue, not only on the football field, but in the locker room. I'm going to be the, the guy that people can turn to um, and, and uh, you know, be the conduit. I, I'm going to be the conduit between the coaching staff and the rest of the players. I, I think he's taken his role of captain very, very seriously. Uh, and I think it comes naturally to him. I think it comes easily. And I think his raw intelligence, you know, is real obvious as well. I think he's a really good communicator. I think he's a, a heck of a leader, very intelligent, and just a solid human being. I mean, he's, he's one of those guys that, uh, you know, is, is a rarity um, in, in terms of as great a football player as he is, he's even a better human being. And once you start to get your share of those kind of guys in your locker room, you're going to have really something special. And I, I think they're moving in that direction. 
We got a little treat when we walked out to practice today. Rehab coordinator Nick Cosgray was holding his drills right in front of the little area where the media is allowed to uh, stand. So we got to see the status of DJ Reader, Rennell Wren, and Trey Hopkins right there in front of us as they were doing footwork drills, pushing a sled, etc. How did those three guys look? I think they looked really good. Rennell Wren is a physical specimen. I mean, that guy's a freakazoid. I mean, he's he's unbelievable to look at. Uh, just a good Lord bless him with a football body, man, in every sense of the word. But I, I think, you know, it, when you're being very critical with your eye, you can still see a, a slight hitch in the get-along, but they're moving at a very, very good clip. You know, it's not uh, it's not half speed. They're, they're, they're testing it. Um, they're changing direction. Uh, there's hesitation in what they're doing, and then acceleration off the hesitation. So it, it, there's not a whole lot of violent cutting going on yet, but it's all straight-ahead stuff. But it's not straight-ahead, same type of speed, same type of gait, same type of steps. Uh, there's, there's some jump steps, you know, jumping and landing and, and holding, freezing that, and then accelerating off of it. It, it was interesting to watch them. And then um, hit the sled, you know, pushing the sled, not really hitting it, just driving a sled, and then getting their body, their back angle straight, and their bodies low, uh, bending at the knees and not at the waist, you know, to, to get in a football position while they're doing it. Um, and Nick, Nick's as good as there is in the league. And every player for the Cincinnati Bengals that's rehabbed with Nick Cosgrave has nothing but great things to say about him, and, and, and rightfully so. He does, he does an outstanding job, and he's brought a lot of guys back way ahead of schedule and um, put guys in situations where – if they did have any inclination of, oh, man, is this the end? Uh-uh, far from it. Nick's going to bring me back. He's going to bring me back as strong or stronger than I was before. Trey Hopkins tore his ACL in the final game of the year against Baltimore. I would have said at that point, okay, he'll be back during the season, but I don't know if he'll be back in time for week one. I can't say that anymore. Based on how he looks, I think there's at least a chance that he's able to answer the bell in week one. I don't think it's out of the question. I, I'd be I'd be shocked if there, if anybody has said, you know what, no, that's that's not happening. I think that if he doesn't uh, come back week week one, it's certainly not going to be. It's going to be shortly thereafter before when he does return, and uh, and that'll be a sight for sore eyes. I think for for Frank Pollock, and you know, th- th- there's returning, and then there's being able, ready and able to play in an NFL game for you know X number of snaps. So um, you know he'd have to be able to at, at training camp I'm not saying play in preseason games although you'd almost like to uh, test it in a preseason game particularly if you're a lineman before you go out there in that first regular season game so it might you know that that might be the the sticking point what can he do uh, how far can he push it in training camp but I wouldn't rule anything out looking at him out there today and I did I did have a chance to just say hey Trey man you look good how's it feel he goes great feels really good man so you know uh Talking about it's one thing, you know, <laughs> lacing up the pads and and the and the the cleats and getting out there and going against these behemoths and doing what you need to do to play in the National Football League is another. But again, I, I agree with you, Dan. I would not rule it out. All right, I aimed the lap signal into the Cincinnati sky this week. That means we've got some ask lap questions. Are you ready? Ready to roll, sir. There are always questions about the offensive line. This one comes from Will. In the current NFL landscape, which approach works best, zone blocking or straight-up power blocking? And if it depends on personnel, which suits the Bengals' current roster best? 
Well, the Bengals went from a, a zone-blocking team to a gap-blocking team where you block down and pull linemen and, and run powers and pull offside linemen and that sort of thing last year. And that's when Joe Mixon started to really show some gains in terms of his uh, the yards, rushing yards. But Joe Joe feels good about Frank Pollock's system, and Frank Pollock's system is a, is a zone-blocking team, a wide-stretch zone-blocking team. Um, but it, that's not to say that you don't incorporate some angle blocking. I, I think the best run games in the National Football League incorporate a little bit of, of, you know, some of each. And I'm not saying it's 50-50 or anything like that, but if you're having trouble, if a de- defensive configuration or personnel grouping or whatever it is is causing you problems, you have to have the flexibility and the, and the ability to to try something else. And uh, so I, I think that uh, – I think – there's a, there's a place for all of it, but I do think Frank's primary run blocking or run run game philosophy is zone stretch zone type things. Really getting a, a defensive line to to have to run and then cutting somebody in half. That's that's the key to the success in the in the zone scheme or the stretch scheme is you get the defense flowing and somebody gets somebody on the ground and that's a natural cutback lane. You can't make plays when you're on the ground. It's it's impossible. So. That, that's the big deal. Either you get somebody walled off on the backside for a cutback lane, or if they're on the ground, the back has to see it and hit it. And Joe, Joe's done a really good job of, uh, of doing that. When Frank was here as the line coach, it, uh, it wasn't working real well in, in Zach Taylor's initial uh, stages of running games. So they went to the, 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 the gap, block down, power, pull the offside, get more uh, helmets at the front side of the play, try to outnumber them helmet-wise, and uh, and try to create gaps that way. Kyle has this offensive line question. How much of an upgrade have the Bengals made in their offensive line personnel, and how much of an impact will Frank Pollock have as the coach? Yeah, I think Frank's all about, uh, you know, technique and uh, fundamentals and hammering them over and over and over again. I think he's going to have a major impact. I'll just go back to 1981 when Jim McNally you know, was our line coach with the Cincinnati Bengals, and uh, Jim was, you know, early, in the early stages of his career as a line coach then. But one thing that we did from the very first day of training camp till the very last practice before the Super Bowl, we did the exact same drills every single Wednesday, every single Thursday, everything single Friday. You can sit, you could set your clock to it that this is what we're going to do. We're going to, you know, warm up at the duck walk. Make sure that you know we were doing it the, the way he wanted, and and having our uh, having our feet in, in in the proper way, and, and and having your knees bent, and and duck walking, and 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 then you'd have targets that you had to hit on pads. Uh, you'd have hand placement drills. You'd have all all these drills, and it was like every single day was the same. So you become a creature of habit, and and uh, it becomes something you don't even have to think about the technique. It's, you've done it so many times. You get in the game, you've repped it so many times in practice, it just happens. I mean, it, it's automatic. And, and then when you're working in, in uh, tandem with, a, with a, you know, a lineman that you've done it with over and over and over again, every single day in practice, the old repetition breeds comfort level uh, thing I think is real. I think Frank believes in that, and it worked for Jim McNally. And I know Frank Pollock is a disciple of Jim McNally, and uh, watching, watching his drills – all starts with your feet and ends with your hands, and it always will. We've talked about almost every athletic endeavor starts with your feet, ends with your hands. Blocking and tackling the same thing. 
and you can't tackle as an offensive lineman, but you damn well better be able to do some blocking. And uh, and I, and I, th- I think Frank's going to do really good things with this uh, with this group of offensive linemen. I think I think they're going to. The, the thing you have to do is believe in it because it's it's mundane. And Frank has a great saying: "Master the mundane," because it uh, it sometimes it's like, oh man, we we got to do this again. You knew exactly. You'd walk out on the field and you knew exactly what the next forty five minutes were going to be. Every single step of it, every single movement, but it worked. It worked, and and uh, that repetition led to uh, great performance for sure. One more offensive line question. It comes from Johnny. What are the chances that Billy Price keeps the starting center spot, assuming that he does begin the year as the starter? Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's that's a great question. That's up to Billy. Uh, Billy's in control of his own destiny, as as far as that's concerned. Um, Trey Hopkins got an opportunity because of injury to Billy Price. Now Billy Price gets uh, another opportunity because of an injury to Trey Hopkins, and that's that's life in the National Football League. Um, that's why when you're a lineman and you do get injured, you try to get back in there as quick as you possibly can because you don't want anybody else getting your reps. Um, but, yeah, Billy, obviously Frank Pollock had confidence. He was on the staff that drafted Billy Price. So he saw something in Billy Price uh, in his tape up at Ohio State. And, um, you know, respected him and respect, respected his play. He was drafted high in the, in, by the Cincinnati Bengals, a first-round draft pick. So I think, I think Billy feels good about Frank. Frank feels good about Billy. And it's a clean slate. And that's one thing that every lineman has to understand. It's a totally clean set slate now. Frank Pollock is, is the guy. He's the new sheriff in town. It doesn't matter what you did with Jimmy Turner. It doesn't matter hill of beans. You're starting uh, all everybody's starting fresh and new with Frank Pollock, and that's why I think Trey Hopkins, in his mind, he wants to get back as quickly as he possibly can too, because he wants to make an impression, a positive impression on Frank Pollock. And right now, he's missing all of these reps we're talking about. You know, you, you, it, you can't take them mentally. It's like it's a muscle memory thing. You have to go. You have to go through it. And your body just has to get used to it. And, and then it becomes something where you don't even need your mind. It's just it's total muscle memory. Here's a question from Mon. What player or position group has surprised you during these OTAs? I, I'm not really surprised by, you know, by any any group. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, groups are living up to, to billing, I think, as such. I think overall, this football team is so much younger and so much more athletic, it's ridiculous. Mm. I, in my opinion, at, at just about every position group, the linebacker core is, is is one that just jumps out. I mean, they drafted three young linebackers last year that they're counting on a lot uh, as second-year players, and that's where you normally make some major strides. I think the secondary is light years better than where it was. today. In today's uh, uh, OTA, for the first time in the, the halfway point, so they didn't even do seven on seven until halfway through OTAs. This was the introduction of seven on seven, the old skeleton drill, as such. Uh, everybody's uh, working except the offensive and defensive lines, and it was very interesting to see this, you know, wide receiver core that they they like a lot. Um, you know, Tyler Boyd, T. Higgins, and and Chase, you know, working against these new guys in the in the back end in the secondary, and it was no pass rush, but I, I thought that everybody belonged. You know, I was I was looking at the far end of the field where those guys were working against each other. I was like, yeah, I mean, all these guys belong out here, and it's it's pretty competitive. 
it was that that seven on seven that only lasted ten or fifteen minutes was the most competitive aspect of uh, OTAs that I've seen, you know, in the first week and a half here. So I think at some point, probably during mandatory minicamp next week, they probably will do eleven on eleven. They'll probably run some team um, team plays, uh, but they're they're ramping it up and they're they're staying very very careful and cautious and elementary to be sure. But I th- I think the, the the message that I'm getting is. Just about every position group is is as advertised. You know, it's they've they've made additions and they felt good about the additions they've made. And like it's now you you got your presence. Now you've had a chance to unwrap them and assemble them, get them out on the field, and hmm, as built as advertised. I didn't waste my money. Here's a question from Rob: The Bengals have clearly improved the secondary, but have they done enough to stop the run better this year? That's the uh, that's the they have to have <laughs> that's the big key um you know over the last two years they've given up more uh, ground yards than anybody in the national football league and uh you know that that has to stop you you earn the right uh to stop the pass by you have to be able to stop the run that's first and foremost i mean if you if you're going to get gashed on a regular basis in the running game every successful defense that i've seen and it's looking like they're you know built, trying to build this one this way you have to have your big run stuffers inside and they can't they don't necessarily have to be big blobs that are stiffs they've got big guys that have some athleticism and ability to stay on their feet and in in good feet and able to move so you're, you're big on the inside to stuff the run on the edge you want speed off the edge you know to rush the passer and be able to set the edge in the running game some athleticism there and they've really you know emphasized that both in the draft and people that they signed in free agency and then, you know, uh, again, once you've got that front seven uh, built to where, okay, now inside linebacker, okay, we've got youth and athleticism, like we talked about at the inside linebacker position that they drafted, and they've, you know, re- resurrected or reconstructed the secondary in, in the form of free agency over the last two off seasons. So they're, they're trying to build, I think, a defense the right way, but it has to start with a couple of run pluggers inside and, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm interested to see how Tupac, he, he looks like he's got himself in pretty good shape. Will DJ Reader come back from injury the, the way, you know, everybody uh, hopes that he will? Ogan Joby, will he be a, a guy that will help, you know, stuff that inside running game? They've addressed it, but that, that's the key. If, they're, if, they're, if you can own a team between the tackles and just line up and, and say, you know, I'm going to impose my will on you, I'm not going to do anything fancy, I'm just going to smack you right in the mouth, and I'm going to have my big running back, you know, uh, just destroy you. That that's a that's a great feeling when you're up front as an offensive lineman. That's a very very bad feeling if you're on the other side of things uh, defensively. So you know, I hope the Bengals find themselves in that mode. The offensive line comes to the line of scrimmage and like, yeah, we're going to give you a dose of Joe Mixon when you think you've had enough. We're giving you another spoonful, and you're going to like it. You know, I mean that. I, I hope they run the hell out of Joe Mixon like that. And, and I think I'm sure Joe does too. Here's a question I love. It comes from Bengals John. Who is the best player you have seen at each level, high school, college, and pro? Oh my goodness, so many. I mean, so many great players. Um, high school. I'll probably have to go back to this, this guy uh, running back in my high school. Uh, I wasn't play. I did not play with him. He was like probably my first. I don't know about sports idol, but sports player that I was like, wow, Mike Martello. 
<laughs> he was a running back at Wakefield High School. And I just remember, you know, like as a 6th, 7th, 8th grader going to Wakefield High School football games and Mike Martello, who's in our high school Hall of Fame, just destroying people. And I thought, man, Mike Martello, if I could just be like Mike Martello, you know. And, and uh, all, all of a sudden one day uh, I, I answered the doorbell rings in our front door and I answered the front door and it's Mike Martello standing on our front oh. porch selling some kind of ticket, raffle ticket or whatever for some high school fundraiser. And I, I couldn't even talk. My, <laughs> my mother comes to the front door and I said, buy a bunch, Mom. You know, I said, that's Mike Martello. <laughs> but I, he, he was the first guy that I, that I can remember uh, Thanksgiving Day games against Melrose High School, our big rival. I just remember him just putting his foot in the ground and making these unbelievable cuts. He was a low center of gravity, tough, you know, tough Italian kid that uh, just... You know, you could give him the ball a hundred times. It seemed like in a game, and he was going to give you everything he had. So he probably made made the first impression on me as a as a high school player. But I mean, I did see a bunch of really talented high school football players uh, in the league that I played in up in the Boston area, and then, and then in high school, man, just so many guys. But uh, to pick to pick one guy, that's uh, that's so hard. But. I mean, honestly, a, a guy that, that I really had a ton of respect for, Joe Ehrman, that we talked about a little earlier. Mm-hmm. He was an All-American defensive tackle at Syracuse, and I was a freshman uh, at Syracuse, and we couldn't play freshman, uh, varsity as freshman. We had a freshman schedule, and so the freshmen were still, you know, uh, the lowly freshman football players. But Joe Ehrman, uh, the first time I scrimmaged against the varsity, you know, I guess I showed him enough where he just said to me, uh, yeah, let's stay out after practice. I want to work with you. You know, I think you've got some uh, some potential, you know, and you, you want to work? I'm like, heck yeah, I'll, I'll work with you, you know. And, and he uh, <laughs> he rubbed my nose in it, you know, the, the first few uh, practices after practice. I mean, he, he was just, he was a great player. And, and um, you know, he I think he really helped me improve from freshman to season to where, as a sophomore, I ended up getting a starting job as a sophomore lineman. And I think Joe Ehrman helped me big time in that regard so he was a tremendous football player I'll never forget sitting in the stands as a freshman football player we were playing Kansas and there was this unbelievable goal line stand and the last player of the goal line stand John Riggins the big fullback that played with the Jets great running back he is carrying it on fourth down and he and Joe Orman hit helmet to helmet and it was the loudest crack I've ever heard in my life Mm. in the middle of his Rydell helmet Joe's helmet cracked right from his mask halfway up his helmet and Joe just, you know, walks off the field, tosses the helmet to the equipment guy. They take it was fourth down. We have a big goal line stand. Joe just, you know, they change the face mask out, take all the, they got the drill and they're taking the screws out and they're frantically putting the face mask. He put, puts the helmet on with the new face mask and goes out the next defensive series and just dominates some more. I'm like, that's a football player right there. And and uh, he and John Riggins, there was a, I, I watched the two of them after the game. They met at midfield and talked, and I'm sure they were talking about that that play. And uh, so I guess Joe probably comes to mind for me, uh, you know, as a, as a, a, a college player that maybe really strong player that had a big influence on me. And I, I'd say in the National Football League, man, there's so many unbelievable players. But the guy that I just had so much respect for his game and the way he played his game was Walter Payton. And I got to meet him um, at a wrist wrestling thing out in Las Vegas. And I was just so impressed by the dude. And how strong he was, and um, I'll never forget he he put down Curly Cole in a wrist wrestling thing. I was my my jaw hit my hit my kneecaps, 
Probably 130 pounds lighter. Oh, yeah. And just so explosive. And you got him on the jump, and, and I'm like, you better run, Walter. Because, <laughs> I mean, Curly Culp started swelling up and everything. But then uh, Walter Payton, one of the days we were doing the wrist wrestling stuff, you know, we get done with what we're doing, and he jumps on his hands, and he walks around the whole room on his hands. And I was like, oh, my, this is unbelievable. Mm. So the strength that that took, the balance, the gymnastic ability. And that the thing about him is... He was. He did everything. I mean, man, his blitz pickup. He he embarrassed linebackers. He just wouldn't block them. So I think, I think I just had a, a uh, such an enormous respect for how hard he played the game, how much the game meant to him, knowing the kind of human being he was and all that. I, I'd have to say, sweetness was uh, was pretty special and died way too young, man. Only the good die young and not good. He might have been the greatest and. That that one that one hit me when Walter Payton died. That that one hit me hard. Excellent question. Excellent answers. All right, we try to end Ask Lap with a couple of wild card questions whenever possible. We've got two good ones this week. The first one comes from KC. KC asks Sunshine Band? It <laughs> could be. Could be KC and the Sunshine Band. Here's the question. What is your favorite breakfast meal? And if you say yogurt and half a grapefruit, I will call BS. <laughs> Don't worry about that. No way, Jose. I, I'm I'm a uh, I'm a guy that likes his his pancakes and waffles. I, I'm the, I'm that kind of breakfast guy, and I have to stay away from it. If I ate what I wanted for breakfast that way all the time, I'd be in real trouble. But I, I really, uh, you know, a really good waffle, really good pancake. Of course, you know, I got to throw some bacon and sausage in there as well. But uh, I, I used to like to go to the IHOP, you know, with all the flavored syrups and, and just try like a little little dollop of each. And I, I wasn't big on trying, I don't know, if I didn't like it, ruining my whole breakfast. I'd end up going back to the, the old standby maple syrup. I mean, really good maple syrup, the natural maple syrup out of Vermont. But... Um, yeah, and boysenberry, blueberry, you know, I'd try a few of those things. Strawberry, maple syrup, whatever. But I, I, I really liked, um, I, I guess it's because when we were young, I didn't have a ton of money, but my, my dad on Mother's Day would take the family out to IHOP, and it was a Mother's Day breakfast. So that was a big deal because my you know mother didn't have to cook and all that. And I remember how, how big, it was almost like our big, is getting up there with Christmas and you know, Thanksgiving and all those kind of things because it was a special thing. We never went out to eat. And when we went as a family, piled up in the car and went to IHOP, man, there were some pancakes and waffles and syrup. There, there was some consumed because I got I got two brothers that were about as big as eater as me. And, man, we, I, I think the servers at IHOP were like, man, because it was all you could eat. And we busted. We busted their bank, man. When they saw us coming, they, they put up the white flag. They started waving that white surrender flag. Closed on Mother's Day. That's right. <laughs> Mother's Day breakfast, off limits to Lapham's. <laughs> it's funny, the things you remember. I'm the fourth of five kids. Middle class family. We didn't have a ton of money. Every now and again, my stepfather would bring a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken home. I thought that that was the greatest thing on God's green earth. I'm telling you, it's the simple things, you know. I mean, that's when life's the best. You, you appreciate the simple things so uh, so much. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember just when we would get roast beef, an actual roast beef for dinner, oh, man, it would be like maybe once a month. But it, it, it was like, 
it was like heaven, man, just seeing that roast beef being carved and thinking, yeah, I'm going to have a meal this day, boy. This is, this is high cotton. We never had steak, I mean, growing up. We never really, I mean, I remember going on recruiting trips and coaches like, you want a steak dinner? Oh, heck yeah, let's do that. Man, that's big time. All right, final question comes from Tom McDowell. We met Tom at the Admiralty in London when the Bengals okay. uh, have played overseas. Here's his question. What's the biggest animal you think you could wrestle? <laughs> <laughs> uh, now? Uh, probably a tomcat. <laughs> but I, I did, uh, I think I've told this story. I, I'm not sure on the podcast, but I saw Jim LeClaire uh wrestle victor the wrestling bear and i, I thought yeah I, I, I might be able to like you know muscle with victor a little bit but jimmy jimmy leclerc was like a heavyweight wrestling champion at north dakota state so i mean he he was he was shooting a leg and <laughs> he was doing some things with victor victor wasn't sure what was happening but um that was that was impressive to watch that big old bear swat people around they had a big swimming pool set up it was like a you know, a lawn and garden show or a camper show or whatever. And they had a big swimming pool and, and Victor would backhand people into the swimming pool. Um, but I guess, I guess uh, if, if I could have hung with Victor for a little while, I, I would have been, would have been pretty happy about that, I think. You wrestled an animal named Crumry huh. before your NFL career was finished. I'm telling you, Tim Crumry, that's, I mean, you start thinking about great football players, that guy, I mean, all football all the time. He had scar tissue on the bridge of his nose that looked like cottage cheese. I mean, he had just, that helmet came down on the bridge of his nose so many times during his football career that uh, it, it had built up scar tissue that was incredible. And and it just, you, you know, it was football season when Tim would always have a bandage on that thing and it would always be weeping blood, you know, on and off the field the entire season. And you knew it was football season for Tim Crumry. Another great edition of Ask Lab. Keep those questions coming. Appreciate the time. Thank you. My pleasure, Dan the Man. You're the best. This is week three of the voluntary spring practices for the Bengals. Next week, they'll hold a mandatory minicamp on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then the players will be off until the start of training camp. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, Please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.